Well, it all ended about six years ago, just a couple of months before my family, before we moved to Johnson City and began our ministry here at Boone Trail. And since that six-month period, unfortunately, it has not started again since that time. What, you may ask, is it that stopped and hasn't started again? Well, a few years before that ending time of six years ago, I made a new disciplined habit in my life. Every morning for about an hour, hour and a half, I went to the gym in our community. It was a disciplined habit. Learned a lot about myself in that period of time. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that that I was buff or or had this glorious six-pack by any stretch of the imagination. There's video evidence that would deny that if I claimed it to be the case. After all, my whole philosophy of life has been why settle for the six-pack when you can carry the whole keg. That's the way I have lived my life. But needless to say, I was in much better shape then than I am today. As I say, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about my body. I learned a lot about physicality. We talked about slow-twitch muscles and fast-twitch muscles and the importance of protein and the need for cardiovascular in addition to weight training. And as you can tell, those days have long since passed in my life. But what is of interest to me is how quickly you can lose what it took so long to acquire. You you can work for months, for years, to be at a certain level, and then when that ceases, you get out of the habit. And getting out of the habit makes you fall backwards. You're not able to maintain what you had when you get out of the habit. And that physical training, that, 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 that physical discipline was of tremendous value in my life. It was, it was of value physically. It was of value emotionally, uh, mentally. It was of tremendous value in my life. But in our text this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're reminded in just three verses that we look at this morning that there is a greater type of discipline to which we should give ourselves today. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6, 7, and 8. And let's, let's look at these verses together this morning. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The the key to all of this, the the, the hinge upon which it all swings, is found there in the latter part of verse 7. Rather, train yourself for godliness. What, What is godliness? What does godliness look like? Will we know it if we see it? It's interesting that this word that is translated godliness here, it's a word that occurs only 15 times in the New Testament. 
13 of those times you find here in Paul's writings, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. We refer to them as the pastoral epistles. Paul is writing to these pastors, Timothy and Titus. And 15 times in the New Testament we find godliness. 13 of those times are right here in these letters, and 9 of them are in 1st Timothy alone. Now what's interesting about that is that these letters, these pastoral letters, they're the last writings of Paul. They're the last letters that Paul wrote to anyone before Paul was beheaded by the Roman emperor Nero. There's an urgency within that, isn't there? If, if you know that your life is coming to an end, if you know that you're at the end of this life's journey, there is an urgency in the message that you pass along to other people. Maybe, maybe as a parent you want to go back to your children and, and say to them, I know I wasn't the parent that I needed to be. I'm sorry for that. I wish I could have corrected that and done that differently. Maybe you want to pass along important truths to the people around you, your family and friends, so that they know what really matters to you in life. That's much like what's happening with Paul. His life is coming to an end, and he has it pretty well figured out that he's not going to be around much longer. And so these final letters that he writes, they contain important information. And it's interesting that within this, Paul stresses the need for godliness in Timothy and Titus's lives, not only in their lives, but in the church's lives that they were pastoring, and even for us today. The Word of God is living and active. It applies for us today as much as it did to them in the first century when it was written. What is godliness? Godliness is an active obedience that stems from an absolute awe of who God is. Let me give you that again. Godliness is an active obedience that stems from an absolute awe of who God is. Godliness is not what we usually think of when we think of godliness. It's not upturned eyes and folded arms. That's, that's not godliness necessarily. The godly among us are those whose recent worship of God flows into obedience within our lives throughout the week. Along with that, in these very letters, Paul tells us that Jesus is the very essence of godliness. Just one chapter, over, uh, one chapter over in this very same book, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read this in verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What's the mystery of godliness, Paul? What's it all about? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The mystery of godliness is Jesus Christ Himself. You want to see what godliness looks like? Look at Jesus and you discover what godliness is like. He lived his life in godliness, and now, as the resurrected Lord, he gives to us godliness within our lives. Godliness is the power to live this godly life we're called to live. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us, in all, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. His power has granted to us 
everything that pertains to life and godliness. And in our text in 1 Timothy 4, Paul lays out before us the, the, the correct approach to godliness. And it won't come as any surprise what those things are that Paul tells us. He tells us that it involves diet and it involves discipline. Look, first of all, at this, the, the diet for godliness. Verse 6 again, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. There, there is a diet that must be a part of our lives spiritually if we are to grow in godliness. And what does Paul tell us we need to do? First of all, verse 7, he tells us that we need to reject bad teaching. Reject bad teaching. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly little myths. Reject that which is bad. Now, we know this physically, don't we? If, if I was really concerned about being in better shape physically... You know what I wouldn't do. Exactly. Krispy Kreme donuts. Do you know how many people have joked to me about Krispy Kreme donuts in the past month or so? Some of you ungodly swine have even brought some by my house to tempt me. I know I shouldn't eat them. You don't have to tell me that. I know they're bad for me. I want to quit? Why? Because essential to a healthy diet is a rejection of junk food, right? <laughs> but it tastes so good. And it's so easy. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. Essential to, to a health-giving spiritual diet is a rejection of junk food theologically. Paul refers to them as the irreverent, silly myths, these godless myths, old, old wives' tales. We're familiar with old wives' tales, aren't we? We've heard them all our life. I've been told them, uh, don't go outside with your hair wet, you'll catch a cold. It's an old wives' tale. Not true. Feed a cold, starve a fever, right? No, don't do that. That's, that's an old wives' tale. Don't sit too close to the TV. Why? You'll go blind. Not true. How long are you supposed to wait before eating, or after eating before you go swimming? Yeah, it's a wives' tale. It's not true. Now, there's going to be some kid this summer that drowned, and it's going to be my fault now. I told him not to eat, and you said it was okay. No, I, that's not what I mean. We're familiar with some of these old wives' tales. But spiritually, there is a danger that is much more prevalent within our lives. These godless, these silly, these irreverent myths. And the phrase that Paul uses here, these irreverent, silly myths, it's a way of Paul saying these people would believe anything. False doctrine is rampant in American culture today. You can just about turn on any television preacher and you will hear it. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to have everything. Balderdash. God's not created us for this life. He's created us for the life to come. And He gives us everything that we need in this life. And sometimes that's difficulty. Sometimes it's trial. Sometimes it's tragedy. Why? So that we might grow in godliness. 
I just read another biography of uh, Charles Spurgeon and a, a, a close friendship that he made uh, with a man who had been a slave in America for 12 years. You ought to read it. Steal Away Home, a beautiful, wonderful book. Charles Spurgeon and his wife, Susanna, both were absolutely overwhelmed with physical calamities. Charles Spurgeon had gout to the point that he could hardly ever move when it struck him at its fiercest. His wife was bedridden for years. And as you read about this and you see these, these afflictions that he had, along with the afflictions that this former slave endured and how God used them in spite of and in the midst of and because of those afflictions, it is amazing what God can bring out of our trials and difficulties. People will believe anything, Paul says. Don't, don't give in. Don't believe. Have nothing to do with these irreverent, silly myths. You pick up a book, and it's supposed to be a Christian book. And you really say, well, it, 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 look at this. This is wonderful. It must be true. It's a Christian book. Read with discernment. Look into the things and compare them with the Word of God and make sure they match up. Have nothing to do with those things that don't. Remember that commercial years ago, I think it was an insurance commercial, and this girl introduces to her friend who, her new uh, boyfriend, the French supermodel. Well, I know it's true because it was on the internet. Bonjour, he says. That's the way some of us are. We're confronted with things that we believe they are supposed to be spiritual, and we just soak it up without saying, does this line up with the Word of God? No discernment, no testing of the claim against the truth of Scripture. Paul says, reject that spiritual junk food. And in place of, doctor, of, of bad teaching, he tells us that we should accept good teaching. Verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Now remember, Paul is writing to, to pastors. He's writing to Timothy here within this. And this is especially true for pastors. Those who teach and preach the Word of God. Be constantly giving the Word of God. The most effective ministers throughout history are those who have persevered as students of the Word of God. And Paul is adamant about this to Timothy. Look at what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says this. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. It applies to us as ministers, definitely, but it applies not just to us as ministers. This is true for all of us. That's why Paul says, you've been trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you followed. People come along and they say, oh, I, want, I want God to speak to me. I want to get a word from the Lord. You want a word from the Lord? Read your Bible. You'll get a word from the Lord. Because it is His word to us. 
It's why we have such a stress on the Word of God here. It's why we read the Word of God together within our services because those moments are the only infallible, inerrant moment that we share together as a congregation. We say this is the Word of God. Hear what He says to us. There's a diet for godliness. Reject bad doctrine, accept good teaching. And then he talks about the discipline for godliness as well. Continuing, verse 7, rather train yourself for godliness. There's a call to exercise. Train yourself for godliness. It's a word that's highly expressive. The, the root of it is the Greek word gumnos. It's where we get our word gymnasium. It, it, it has the smell of the gym in it. The sweat of a good workout. The feeling of that accomplishment. Paul essentially says here, gymnasticize yourself, exercise, work out, train yourself. Why? For the purpose of being godly. Came across some astounding statistics this week. Uh, uh, Olympic athletes and their training regimen. Most Olympic athletes, on average, they spend about five to six hours per day, six days per week, before they're even accepted onto the Olympic team. That is 30 to 36 hours per week training for their event. That is 1,560 to 1,872 hours per Per year. They train on average four to eight years before even making the team. 6,200 to 15,000 hours in training before even getting on the team. Thousands of hours of training enable a mere mortal to run 100 meters in under 10 seconds. 10 seconds. Thousands of hours in training for that to be accomplished. Usain Bolt did it in 9.58 seconds to be exact. Thousands and thousands and thousands of hours training for that 10-second run. We might spend years of study and memorization to be able to speak a non-native language. We might go through hours of watching game films that can free up a defensive back to play with utter abandon within the game. But for some reason, when it comes to spiritual habits, we hesitate and we pull back. Discipline? Really? And that sounds too much like legalism there, and I don't want to be involved in that. Friends, it's not legalism. Legalism is self-centered. Discipline is God-centered. Legalism says, let me do this that I might merit God's favor. Discipline says, let me do this because God loves me and enables me to live for Him that I might bring glory to Him. What's amazing is that Paul the apostle of grace, he's known. He brought a legendary, disciplined energy to his service to God. And yet he viewed all of his labor as a product of grace. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God I am what I am, he says. And his grace toward me was not in vain. 
On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Wow. The grace of God compelled him to do what needed to be done that he might be godly. And what do we exercise? How does this play out in our lives? We exercise in those disciplines and those habits that promote godliness. And as we come to the beginning of, of a new year, I, I know that, that many times there are people who say, I want to evaluate what happened last year and plan for the year ahead. And so we're going to help with this just a little bit, church. We're going to spend the next few weeks talking about some of those spiritual habits that need to be in place in our lives to grow in godliness by the grace of God. Train yourself for godliness. Exercise yourself for godliness. It's acquired by the grace of God, but it requires our obedient faithfulness to see it come to fruition. Us cooperating with God that we might be more like Him. Discipline yourself. Train yourself for godliness. Parents, how do we, how do we help our children grow in godliness? How much time is devoted to knowing God, not, not just knowing about God. I'm not talking about knowing about God. I'm talking about knowing God in His Word. Spend hours on the ball field every day. Multiple days a week. Why? Because that training is important. You've got to practice. You've got to train. You get better when you practice and when you train. But what would it be like if we took just a portion of that time and said, we're going to saturate you with the Word of God? What would it look like, parents, if we promoted godliness? I'm, I'm not talking about mere morality, okay? I'm talking about godliness. As we promote all sorts of other endeavors, academically, physically, in the sports arena. There's a call to exercise. Train yourself for godliness. And then he gives us not only this call to exercise, but he tells us the benefits of exercise very quickly. Verse 8, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. F physical exercise does have value, absolutely. You, you, you can't deny that. Physical exercise pays off, but it's limited. For instance, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Remember him? I mean, he, he was Mr. Universe, and he worked to show it to be there. He had those massive biceps and those cannonball delts that he had. He's not taking those into eternity. In fact, have you seen him lately? He's not even taking those into the grave. <laughs> has physical exercise profited him? Of course it has. 
No one could deny that. But training for godliness, Paul tells us, has unlimited benefits, both in this world and the coming world as well. You see, true godliness, through the grace of God, it makes us better employees. It makes us better employers. It makes us better husbands, better wives, better parents, better children, better citizens, better members of the body of Christ. Godliness impacts us in this life. But it also impacts our coming eternity. Look again, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. Our godliness begun on earth will blossom like an ever-unfolding flower for all eternity. That's why Paul ends this passage in, in verse 9. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What's Paul saying? He's saying, Timothy, listen to what I just said. It's trustworthy. It deserves full acceptance. All Christians ought to take Paul's words to heart here have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So, Christian, the, the question becomes obvious to us. If all Christians ought to, to, to take Paul's words to heart, will you take Paul's words to heart? Will you take it to heart to practice the spiritual habits that lead to growth in godliness? comes by the grace of God. You see, Jesus died to take our sin away, but not just to take our sin away, He died to make us like God, to make us like Him, to be Christ-like in our lives. He died not just for a happy hereafter, but for the nasty here and now. Jesus died to change our lives and develop within us Christ-likeness and godliness. Will you embrace that call that Paul extends this morning to train yourself for godliness, to be godly, cooperating with God as he works in your life by his grace to grow you into what you should be like. Will you embrace that? Will you make that your passion, your vision, not just for this year, but for the rest of your life and for all eternity? Christian, will you do that? Non-Christian, I have to speak to you this morning because you, you may want to be a better person. You, you may want to have a better life. You, you may want uh, all of these things. 
But what we're talking about is the grace to grow in godliness, which you will not have apart from Jesus. You will live every moment on the face of this earth under the wrath and condemnation of God until you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. So I I have to ask you today, will you begin this journey this morning? Those of you without Jesus, will you this day confess faith in Christ, turning away from your sin and coming to Jesus and finding yourself forgiven, liberated, changed for the glory of God. Father, this morning we thank you for your precious word to us. We thank you for the the mere simple yet astounding fact that you have given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Father, I pray first of all for us who are believers that we would not let this moment slip by, but that it would be that, that aha moment in our lives. Confronted by your word through your spirit, that we would say, this, this is what's been missing. Godliness. Godliness by the grace that God gives us. Father, I pray today for those who don't know Jesus, that they would this day be confronted with your grace and your holiness, and that today they would confess faith in Christ. We ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand this morning. As we stand, we'll sing together and Maybe you'd like to know about being a member of this church family. If you would, just just slip out and you can meet me here. We'd love to begin that conversation with you. If you'd like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and experiencing His grace, if you would, just, just slip out, meet me here. We'll begin that conversation with you. If you need to come, you come this morning.